Stories, fables, ghostly tales. Welcome, you brilliant listeners. My voice is indeed on the mend, and I'm around 80% of the way there. Still coughing up my lungs a little bit, but I'm at a point that I can record. A big thank you to all of you awesome people that have given me such kind support in my recovery. I haven't been this sick for ages. Anyway, you're here for some stories, and I won't disappoint you. I bring you Kage Keo Part 1 and Part 2 to complete the tale. I've stitched part one and added it in there, just in case some of you haven't heard the episode and to provide you all with some continuity. We find out what fate befalls our protagonist, Mark, during his encounter with a demon of Japanese origin. I guess that would make it a yokai. And I've also, for a treat, mastered the creaking door episode titled The Cards, where a pack of tarot cards read to a vicar shares with him his fate leaving him nervous and cautious. With some fine-tuning as always, I've done my best to add clarity to this episode, and I think with great success. So turn the lights off, the sound up, and get immersed in both our tales today. Mark sighed and looked out at the night sky. He was standing on the roof of his apartment building, four stories up. Sometimes Mark just liked to stay up here and reflect. It was quiet and peaceful. Looking down, you could see the normal hustle and bustle of city life, but if you looked up, you could see the beautiful sky, and sometimes even a full moon or some stars. Mark walked along the border of the roof that helped him from falling to his death. It was pretty late, so he should be going back to his apartment soon. Then he saw something waving in the wind, a few meters away. Mark walked over to it and picked it up, seeing that it was today's newspaper, and began to read the front page. Young man found dead near woods. Earlier today, John Parker, age 20, was found near the northern woods. His family stated that he never had any real enemies, but he was just a bit of a troublemaker. Still, they did not know who would want him dead. His death seemed to be caused by blood loss. The scars seemed to be from a large animal, but that was later found out not to be the case, as a symbol was found carved on the man's forehead. The symbol was the... Mark put the newspaper down where he found it. He didn't want an article like that ruining his night. He walked along the border with his arm on it, looking up at the sky. Twenty years, so young. He felt sorry for the kid. He himself was nearly thirty. He thought of all the things that man would never be able to do now that his life was gone. Mark tried to get it out of his head. He didn't want to get depressed. Without knowing it, Mark's hand bumped an empty cardboard box that was on the edge. He tried to catch it, but was too late. It was sent falling down towards the streets. It was odd. He didn't see any cars. Only one lonely person walking along the sidewalk. Hey, watch out! 
He called, but was a bit too late. The box fell on the person's head. Well, at least it was just an empty cardboard box. He was about to call down his apologies when what happened next made him freeze. The person who was on the sidewalk looked up at him. He had on a black hoodie and a black and white striped scarf. That, of course, was not what made him freeze. The person also had a peculiar mask, half pitch black and half a luminous white. He managed to get back his voice and was going to shout out his apologies. Maybe this guy just came back from a strange party or gathering. When he was yet again frozen by what he saw, the man said something that Mark couldn't quite hear and then jumped onto the wall. He began climbing up the side of the building, similar to the style of a spider or lizard. Mark was just frozen, mouth agape, trying to make sense of what he was seeing. The strange man, no, monster, reached the top of the building and crouched on the border's edge. Mark now saw how he was able to climb the building so easily. He was wearing white gloves, but there were long, black, cat-like claws extending from the edge of each finger through the glove. He saw that the mask had a face on it, but only half a face. On the white side of the mask, there was the shape of an angry-looking eye and a mouth carved into a frown. They just stared at each other. It was only a few seconds, but to Mark it felt like an eternity. Then something strange happened. The monster's mask changed. The angry mouth and eye disappeared, and on the black side of the mask appeared a happy eye and a strange smile. The monster crooked its head to one side and said, Another was Sobidaliska. Mark screamed and ran towards the little door leading to the inside of the building. He prayed that that monster wasn't following him. He reached the door and threw it open, bolted inside, and slammed it shut. Panting, he leaned against the door to keep it shut. After a while, he wondered if the monster was still there, and why it didn't try to force the door open. He had no idea what it said to him, but there was something odd about the way it said it. It seemed happy and playful, but also angry and malicious. He gathered up his courage and decided to open the door. Putting one hand on the knob, he took a deep breath and slowly opened the door, ready for whatever was on the other side. Mark expected to find himself face to face with that odd mask. Instead, he saw that the monster was still where he had left him, sitting on the edge of the roof and smiling that odd and somewhat malicious smile. The monster said again, Another one, <laughs> Mark slammed the door shut again. His legs fell from beneath him, and he sat on the floor. He didn't like the way the monster said those things to him. He sat there for a while, trying to make sense of what happened. Well, it was late. Maybe he fell asleep on the roof and had a nightmare. He decided to check one more time. Mark stood up and slowly opened the door. Part of him said that the monster would be in the same spot, 
and say the same thing. The other part told him that the monster would be right next to the door, claws unsheathed and ready to slash. He was wrong. The monster was gone. It was nothing but the lights of the city and the sound of the few cars driving by. He let out a sigh of relief. It was all just a dream. The door shut in his face. He made a sound of pain as the metal of the door whacked him on the forehead. Mark rubbed his head and fell to the ground. What the hell was that? He shouted to no one in particular. He didn't close the door. Even if he did, he wasn't that clumsy. And the wind wasn't strong enough to close it. He told himself that maybe it was just a freak gust of wind. But his mind quickly disagreed when he heard that laugh again. <laughs> the noise came from right outside the door, a little above it. The monster must have been standing on top of it. Mark woke up confused. He was in his own apartment in his bed. He looked around to make sure it really was his own place. It was. He sighed again. It must have all been a dream. One of those odd dreams that you could have sworn was real. Because it felt so real. But then you realize it must have been a dream because it was so odd. Mark laughed a little to himself. As if monsters like that actually existed. A sudden pain in his forehead appeared, which made him stop. Maybe it was real and he just didn't remember coming back down. Mark quickly dismissed the idea. Maybe he had fallen down in his sleep and then gotten back up again. Things like that happen. Mark got up and went to his fridge to get something to drink. Grabbing a glass on his way there, he opened a carton of orange juice to have for breakfast. He tilted the carton to pour some into the glass when the juice spilled out onto the counter. He paused and stared at it, confused. Then he realized that there was a thin gash on the side of the carton, so that when it was tilted, the juice didn't reach the top, but spilled out the slit instead. <laughs> there it was again. It came from inside the apartment. He turned around quickly, scanning the room for that monster. Then he stopped. Realizing how paranoid and foolish he was being, he had obviously imagined it. The cut in the carton. His girlfriend could have done that. They had recently gotten into a fight. Mark cleaned up the mess and decided he wasn't going to have anything for breakfast. He didn't feel like eating. He was worried how he was going to make up to his girlfriend, Beatrice. He loved her and wanted to make her understand how much he loved her. He turned on the television and watched for a couple of hours, forgetting his troubles. It was noon now. He got up and walked into the kitchen, leaving the television on. He opened up the cabinet that he kept his alcohol in. Taking out a bottle of beer, he poured some into a glass and then nearly dropped the bottle when he saw that it wasn't beer. It was just plain water. He frowned and drank a little bit to check, and it was just plain water. He stared at it angrily and grabbed another bottle, and then another, and another. The content had all been replaced with just normal water. He sighed angrily, 
and then there it was again. <laughs> Mark jumped a little. It was that laugh again. He told himself again and again that he had imagined it. He was just getting paranoid because his dream felt so real. Beatrice could have done this too. There was no monster. He dug around the cabinet to see if there was anything left in there. In the back he knew he had two bottles of wine and one bottle of champagne. But he wanted to save those for when Beatrice forgave him. He saw the bottles and was about to close the cabinet when he did a double take. One of those bottles of wine was missing. Mark looked at where he kept the wine glasses and one of them was missing too. Beatrice could have done that too. She was pretty mad. Mark said to himself quietly. He swore to himself that he would make it up to her, even if it was the last thing he ever did. Then he heard it again. <laughs> it came from the living room, where he left the television on. He knew that he hadn't imagined it this time. That laughter was real. He closed the cabinet shut and ran into the room. Sure enough, there was the monster. It was sitting on the couch, drinking a glass of wine, watching the television that had been left on. The monster paused and looked up at Mark, smiling. It picked up the open bottle of wine in one hand and shook it a little towards him. Wine? Mark paused, staring at the monster. He quickly snapped out of it and ran back to the kitchen as quickly as he could. It was real. He really expected the monster to get up and come after him to kill and eat him, because that's what monsters do. But the monster remained in there. He could hear it laughing at him. <laughs> Mark was afraid. He had to get it out of his place and out of his life. He looked around the kitchen for something to use. Panicking, he grabbed the nearest knife he could and ran back into the living room, ready to fight. The monster was gone. There was no trace. The evidence was the missing bottle of wine and wine glass. He tensed up. Maybe he was going crazy due to that dream. No, no, no. I'm not going crazy. That can't happen. It won't happen. I won't let it. He rambled to himself. He went back into the kitchen and put the knife away. He walked back into the living room and sat on the couch. Picking up the remote, he turned off the television to think. Maybe I'm hallucinating. Maybe I'm going crazy because I'm depressed. Because Beatrice is mad at me. The strange dream just happened to mix with it. Mark got up and grabbed his phone to call her. He dialed her number and waited for her to pick up. Mark was so excited about making up to her that he did not notice someone slipping through the window and watch him. Hi, Beatrice. It's me. I'm so sorry about the fight we had. I... No, I'm really sorry. I promise I'll make it up to you. I swear I'll... He set the phone down. She had hung up. Only then did he see something in the corner of his eye. But when he turned about, it was gone. I'm going to make it up to her, he told himself, grabbing his jacket and putting it on. I'm going to apologize in person. Mark paced around the apartment, thinking of what he should give her. Then he realized and opened up the cabinet to grab the bottle of champagne. But when he opened it up, the bottle was gone. 
He thought to himself that his sincere apology would be enough, and went out the door to see her. Mark walked along quickly, rehearsing what he was going to say. The entire time he was walking, he always felt that someone was following him. He told himself that it was just him being nervous. Mark reached her house and stood on the front steps. He was afraid. Afraid that she wouldn't forgive him and break up with him. He reached out his fist to knock on the door, but quickly drew back. Mark sighed and swore under his breath, telling himself that he was a coward. He turned around and walked away, not noticing that laugh that happened right behind him, followed by the sound of an opening window. Kage Keo, Part 2 Mark left the bar he was at. He had come to this bar to have a little bit to drink before he faced Beatrice, but he didn't feel like drinking at all, and hardly touched what he had bought. Mark told himself that he would go on to apologize, like a man, and set off towards her house. Mark reached out his fist and knocked on the door loudly. He waited. No one answered. He pressed the doorbell several times. He could hear it ring through the house. Still, no one answered. Getting worried, he knocked on the door and shouted her name. Still, no one answered. He tried the doorknob, and it opened. That was odd. She usually kept the door locked. The first thing he noticed when he entered was the open window. The wood bordering the sides of it seemed to have a lot of claw marks on it like a cat had been there. He walked into the dining room, calling out her name. He paused when he saw the bottle of champagne on the table. It was the bottle that he had had in his cabinet. It was open. He picked it up and examined it. There was a note taped to the side of it. The note read, Beatrice, I'm so sorry about our fight. I really want to make it up to you because I love you with all my heart and soul. Mark. Mark stared at the note, looking at the little heart following the word soul. He didn't remember sending this to her. Beatrice? He shouted. He walked around the table and his blood ran cold. He saw her, his darling Beatrice, on the floor. She wasn't moving, and shards of broken glass surrounded her. Beatrice! Mark shouted and fell to the floor to pick her up. Ignoring the cuts given to him by the shards of glass, he saw from the shapes of them that they were from a wine glass. Tears streamed from his eyes, and he hugged her. He knew she was dead. That's so sweet of him. Mark paused and looked up. There it was, the monster. It was sitting in the windowsill, imitating her voice. I'm, I'm so, so sorry. sorry. We, we even fought, fought in, in the, the first place. place. Mark stared at it, anger boiling up inside. The wine. It was poisoned. It laughed hard, putting its hand up to its face to try and stop. You think this is funny? You killed her! I'll kill you! Mark stood up and grabbed the bottle. Yes, I'm fucking mad. Mark threw the bottle, but the monster jumped out of the window before it reached it. He was going to kill it. He would make it pay. 
Mark walked over to Beatrice's dresser. He knew where she kept the pistol for self-defense. He pulled it out and opened the clip. Seeing that there were only four bullets left, that was alright, he only wanted one. Mark ran out of the door. There was no sign of the monster anywhere. He knew it was going to be back in his apartment though. Mark ran as fast as he could, ignoring crosswalk signs and other people, just running. He reached his apartment building and ran up to his floor, slamming the door open to his apartment. He was right. The monster was there. It was lying on top of a bookshelf holding a glass of wine, the wine bottle in the other hand. Wine wanakunata. The only thing empty is your heart. Mark flew into a rage and pointed the gun towards it, shooting a bullet. It sprung up and jumped to the wall, leaving the wine glass and clinging to it with its claws, so that its back was facing Mark. He shot a second time, and it flipped over, so it was now facing Mark, its left arm and leg bending farther than a normal human's. He shot again, and it dropped to the floor, now on all fours. Mark shot yet again, and it did a roll to dodge. Then it jumped back onto the wall, staying there and staring at him. Mark walked over to it angrily and pointed the pistol towards its forehead. He pulled the trigger, but there was only a click, indicating that there were no more bullets. The monster began to laugh crazily. <laughs> Fail? Fail? We'll see about that. Mark was enraged and swung the gun toward it for a melee attack, but the monster crawled to its side. Picking up the wine glass that it had left on the bookshelf, it threw that wine glass at Mark, but Mark dodged it. Then it threw the wine bottle and hit him square between the eyes. Mark passed out. Mark regained consciousness. He was face to face with the monster. It was clinging to the ceiling, its arms and legs bending back at 90 degree angles. So it was facing him. Its mask changed again. The luminous smile on the dark black side of its mask disappeared, and the angry frown reappeared on the white side of its mask. Then he said to him in a dark voice, lacking the happy playfulness of before, Anata It made a low growling, hissing sound and pounced. Later that day, the police arrived at Mark's apartment. A neighbor had called them because they had heard gunshots. Mark was found dead, claw marks all over his body, and throat clawed out. The kill seemed animal, and claw marks were found along the walls and ceiling. Bloody footprints were found headed towards the window. They determined from that that it was done by a person, not an animal. Upon further inspection of the body, they found something carved into the skin on his forehead. Die, Kutsuna! And now, for your old-time radio episode. The Creaking Door. The Cards. What could be more harmless than a village fake? run by the vicar for charity. The little tents and sideshows, the jumble sale, the village ladies all working hard to help the needy. What a pity our little fate 
may turn out to be a fate worse than death. Well, it all looks so jolly this year, Mrs. Matthews. And the weather's been so kind. Vicar, we've been very lucky. Oh, do please have your fortune told before you leave us, won't you? Mrs. Heyman is telling the fortunes this year, and she's working so hard. Well, you know, I've always been rather reserved about having fortunes told at our annual fest. Oh, it's only in fun. Who could be more devout than Mrs. Heyman? Oh, very well. As you say, it's all in a good cause. Come on, ladies, have your fortune told. From the old gypsy's farm with silver. Afternoon, Vicar. Going splendidly, isn't it? You're all making it go splendidly, my dear Mrs. Heyman. I've uh, come to have my fortune told, by the way. Come in the tent, Vicar. <laughs> you know, I couldn't get a crystal ball, so I substituted a pack of tarot cards. Oh, oh do you Thank you. Of course, you know the theory behind this kind of divination. <laughs> I don't know anything about it at all. It's so old that the primitive African witch doctor uses the principle when he throws the bones. Yes, it's very ancient and very evil. Oh, well, my dear Vicar, this is one of those occasions on which out of great evil cometh great good, isn't it? <laughs> Charity will benefit after all. Now, one spreads the cards out like this. Oh, there's man's fate, the hanging man, suspended by his feet from a gibbet. The wheel of fortune. It's all symbolic, of course. There is the devil. And there is death. Very interesting to a student of comparative religion, of course. Well, I don't understand anything about it. Just a game. A nasty game. Unless done in the name of charity, when we all understand the whole thing is merely a joke. The idea was the spirits, evil spirits, take possession of the diviner. In this case, you, Mrs. Hayden, and spell out the future through the cards. A ridiculous notion, of course. Well, I've got a little book here that tells the combinations. Now, in the first place, you're unmarried. Oh, everybody knows that I'm unmarried. Oh, please, Vicar, let's try to preserve something there, monsieur. There. You're going on a long voyage. But everybody knows I'm visiting the mission stations in Tanzania. You will meet a tall, blonde woman, a widow. And there are prospects of romance. Oh, unlikely. <laughs> oh, unlikely for me. Oh, yes. There, you see? You're going to cross water, and there is the prospect of an inheritance. Oh. Fear death by fire. Fear that which flies in the air, but is not a bird. Fear the things of night, the bat, the wolf, the leopard. Speak only truth, or evil will strike you. Oh, please, wake up, Mrs. Haven. Uh, wake up. Uh, oh, mercy me. She seems to have fallen into some kind of trance. The shuttle flies back and forth, and the thread is spun into the lives and deaths of men. Fear the flash of fire. Fear the high face of the sun at noon. Fear the agents of the dark. Fear the man with a scowled face. My dear Mrs. Heyman, please. Oh, dear, I, I must get help. Help! Help! 
extraordinary business, Mr. Matthews. Some sort of possession by spirits, eh? Well, I wouldn't go as far as to say that. No. Oh, probably the spirits came out of a bottle. <laughs> so far as I know, the lady has never let a drop of spirituous liquor pass her lips. Only joking, Vicar. But, but it is most uncanny. Mrs. Heyman went into a trance of some kind. Excuse me, I'd better go to inquire if she's fully recovered. Are you feeling better now, Mrs. Heyman? Oh, it, it was only the heat. I am sorry. It must have been a most unpleasant experience. Uh, tell me, can you remember exactly what occurred? Well, I, I was telling your fortune, and I must... Well, I've simply passed out, that's all. You seem to go into some kind of trance. Uh, do you remember what you said? Oh, it was some nonsense I was making up. You said, fear death by fire. Fear that which flies in the air, but is not a bird. No. Uh, fear the things of night. The bat, the wolf, and the leopard. Speak only truth, or evil will strike you. Oh, I'm sure I did. Well, I can assure you that you did, Mrs. Heyman. I feel that something caused you to give me a warning. Something connected with those evil tarot cards... But what could the warning mean? It all sounds most outlandish to me. Fear death by fire. Well, that's plain enough. Fear that which flies in the air but is not a bird. Oh, why, that would be an aeroplane. Of course. Your trip to Tanzania, you must cancel it at once. Oh, my dear Mrs. Heyman, I can hardly see myself explaining to the bishop that I must take the warning of a pack of cards rather than the evidence of my senses. No, I shall travel as scheduled. And I'd be greatly obliged if you'd refrain from mentioning this matter to anyone, at least until I've arrived safely at my destination. Oh, Vicar, do take care. Of course. And I hope to see you at the mission meeting on Thursday. Then I shall outline the purposes of my visit. But of course I shall be there. The whole village will. Yes, I know. You're all very loyal to me. Without further ado, I'm going to ask the Reverend John Simmons to tell us about his coming visit to Tanzania. Well, you all know the story. Tom Shelby was born in this village. He was a wayward boy, but did splendidly in the war. Later, he became a prospector in darkest Africa, but he never forgot his home village. Yeah, yeah. After the famous diamond find by Dr. Williamson... Tom Shelby took a quick look at the Ubongi district and discovered the fabulous Shelby diamond pipe. He gave a tithe to the church, one-tenth of the profits of that fabulous mine, and he has named his bequest after this, his native village. Oh, it is the wish of the diocese that I go out and tour these mission stations and bring back to you a report of progress. I shall journey to London tomorrow by car and then from London Airport. Oh, where is the man? He really is most exasperating sometimes. Don't worry yourself, he'll show up. But that's the place for Tanzania standing on the top now, he's only got a few minutes. Oh, let's ask him to wait for him. I'm afraid they won't do that, May. He's got scarcely five minutes before she takes off. There's toughness and immigration proceedings to go through. Oh, it really is too bad of him. Where can he be? Oh, uh, I say, uh, please, a moment. 
Where can I hire a car or something? Car? Hire a car? Why, no, sir. Oh, I don't know. My dear man, where is the next village? Uh, behind it. I mean, in front of me. Oh, that I can't say. I be a stranger, you see, from Wemsbury Parver. That's five miles away. Oh, it isn't any use, is it? I'm too late anyway. I, I say, want to live? Oh, yes, indeed. It's frightfully important. You see, I'm catching a plane this morning for... Okay, jump in. that ridiculous old car. Oh, his own must have broken down. Well, whatever's happened is too late. And the plane's about to take off, I'm afraid. Too cruel, it really is. Oh, the poor vicar. Have I missed my aircraft? Oh, you have. Never mind. There's another leaving tomorrow. Look! Look at the plane! There's something wrong! She's crashing! fun from the fortune-telling point of view. Because, you see, my future is behind me. <laughs> Vicar, there's a gentleman from Scotland Yard to see you, Inspector Stone. He's with Mr. Matthews now in your study. Yes, I shan't be a moment. Oh, tell me, Mr. Matthews, did you go to see the vicar off at the airport? Yes, Inspector, I did. I don't mind telling you how envious I was. I know East Africa, and I like it. The great Tom Shelby was my half-brother, you know. Well, that's luck. If the vicar had boarded that play... Uh, yes, uh, exactly. Do you know him well, sir? Uh, who? Uh, the vicar? Yes, fairly well. Why? Can you keep something under your hat? If I have to. Well, that aircraft was sabotaged. And don't ask me how or why. There was a Tanzanian cabinet minister aboard. Perhaps they were after him. In any case, the only passenger who didn't quite make it was your vicar. But his baggage got aboard, didn't it? But surely you can't Can't mean I, that. sir? Why not? Eh? He must be a suspect, mustn't he? Well, technically, I... But suppose. then there's no motive for him blowing up a plane full of people, is there? Unless he's mad. It's quite unthinkable. I can tell you plenty of stories about him. I've seen the way he cries when he's seen a mouse caught in a trap. He wouldn't as much as shoot a partridge for his dinner. No, you're on the wrong track, I'm afraid, Inspector. <laughs> I'm going to lay out the tarot cards again. Oh, you're mad. Haven't they caused enough trouble already? You aren't thinking very clearly, my dear. The cards warned of the accident. They didn't cause it. 
fear the things of night. The wolf, the bat, and the leopard. Isn't that how it went? Then there was a bit about telling the truth or evil coming. Yes, I might get another message. Just let me look out of the window. We can see the vicar's house from here. Yes, the light is still on in the study. Is the police car still outside? Yes. Oh, but they've been with him for hours and hours. That poor man is plagued by the most awful misfortune. Well, I think he was extremely lucky this morning. Don't you? <laughs> with a little less than his luck, he'd be... Where the other victims are. Lay out the cards. Very well. One touches them. I don't know why, but I've seen gypsies do it. If you want to know, it's a sort of spell, a heathen ritual. They're horrible, aren't they? I find them fascinating. I can see that you're in accord with them somehow. You know, May, I do feel that I am. I felt it from the first time I held them in my hand. Harriet, where did you get them? I bought them from an old gypsy woman. She told me they were true cards. Of course, I didn't believe her. Not then. She showed me how to use them. I wouldn't have had the nerve to go down there alone. Shh. Just a moment. Something's coming through. Read. Read me. Something like... Read me plain. The mud stinks and bubbles blue under the stream-hot sun. He who would win this has already lost. He who has lost has won. Harriet. Now, I want you to go over that bit again, Mr. Simmons. Oh, dear, I, I, I'm dropping off to sleep. You want the swine caught who blew up that aircraft, don't you? Yes, yes, you know I do. Then give me your cooperation. You came down the road towards Twelve Trees Junction, and there something went wrong with your car. What went wrong, sir? I know nothing about cars, Inspector. There, there was petrol in the tank. Little lights were burning on the dashboard. Oh, that's all I know. It, it just stopped. But I always thought you knew quite a lot about cars. You used to do your own repairs when you was a lad. Alas, I'm a lad no longer. You can't compare a car of those days with a modern box of tricks. No, I suppose not, sir. Now, how did this car stop? Did it just cut out? Did it splatter or what? Splatter, I, I think. You think... Don't you know, sir? No, I, I can't remember. I am far too tired. Now, let's come to the Tom Shelby estate. How long has Tom Shelby been dead? Six weeks, that's all. Do you know how much he left? Oh, it must be a colossal amount. And with the mine's earning potential, a thousand million wouldn't cover it. What a lot of good one could do with that money. Can you imagine a man who wanted to do good to the world so much that he'd sacrifice a hundred-odd people for it? The greatest good of the greatest number, as it were? I can't imagine a man so monstrous. But I, I'm perfectly prepared to believe that he could exist. Yeah. Do you know who is the beneficiary under the will? Oh, I've no idea. And I refuse to answer any more of these silly questions. I, I don't care who benefits. Although I'm sure Tom would have left a tithe for the church. So you don't know who's the beneficiary? Why, you are, Mr. Simmons. You are. going on here? It's Harriet. She was telling fortunes or something. It happened again and she screamed and then she fainted. Oh, silly fool. Hasn't she caused enough trouble with dabbling in this sort of thing? Oh, help me with her, will you? 
If she'd been the sort of thing that happened in Africa when you meddled with this divination nonsense, she'd think twice about it. Oh, put her head down. She just said something very strange. How dare you chatter about this kind of evil filth? I'm going down to the village inn for an hour. And when I come back, I want that woman out of my house. Very well, Ralph. Well, Vicar, good night to you. I can let myself out. No, I shall see you to your car. I feel like a breath of fresh air in any case. No, as you wish, sir. You'll understand that it's my business to get to the bottom of this matter. What a terrible business it is, too. My sympathies are with you, Inspector. I have no fear. It's a fine night, sir. Yes, yes. On a night like this, I can hardly believe there's such a thing as evil in the world. If only... Down! Get down, man! There he goes. He's running off. It's as though a door had opened and released evil upon the world. Oh, there's big money involved. And big money means big risk. It's the beginning and the end of it. Now, I'll get on to shortwave and have a call put out for that fellow. An armed guard for you, sir. Night and day. Oh, I'm coming. Oh, good morning, Mrs. Heyman. Please come in. I was told your servants hadn't arrived and that you'd no one to look after. Not in the mundane sense, no. It seems there's someone looking after me, though, for I've escaped death twice in 24 hours. I... I read the cards again last night. Oh, I think that was rather foolish of you. However, I must admit they did warn us truly on the first occasion. Yes. That which flies but is not a bird. I rather think that refers to a bullet, not an aircraft... We still have the things of the night and the penalty for telling lies. However, I, I'm not too greatly worried. The next morning makes no sense to me at all. I, I remember it very clearly, but it still makes no sense. What was the warning? Oh, a sort of garbled verse. The mud sticks and bubbles blue under the steam hot sun. He who would win this has already lost. He who has lost has won. What could that possibly mean? Well, I don't think that's very difficult. Diamondiferous clay is often called blue ground. That must be the blue mud referred to. And the hot sun? That's Africa. One would suppose so. Now, he who would win has already lost. That's clear enough. The person who was trying to obtain possession is fated to disaster, while the man who is most disinterested has already gained possession. But who are these people? I only learned for the first time last night that old Tom Shelby left me his entire gigantic fortune. Then you're a rich man. No. He who has lost has won. You see, Tom did that because I always befriended him. He did it because he knows I'm unmarried and will remain so. That I'm a man of extremely simple tastes. That it therefore stands to reason that I shall use this money to advance what we both like to think of as the true and moral aims of life. My dear Mrs. Matthews... Whatever is the matter? Ralph is dead. Oh, my dear, I'm very sorry for you. You wouldn't be if you knew he tried to shoot you last night. That he caused the deaths of all those people. I cannot judge him, May. The temptation was very great. He told me the entire thing. He put the bomb in your luggage. Then he tried to shoot you. I don't know what to say. He must have been stark, raving mad. He was Tom Shelby's half-brother. He believed he should have inherited the mine. Oh, of course. 
everything would have gone to him if the vicar had died before the will was debated. Yes, I, I suppose it was something like that. But of course he was mad, too. In any case, it's all over for him. He had an accident cleaning his shotgun. Oh, my dear. At least that's better for him and for you. I don't say that, Mrs. Heyman. There's no man so evil that he cannot contain a spark of supreme goodness. Now all is explained. Except for one thing. The cards. How on earth did Harriet get messages from the tarot cards? I have no theories, ladies. I have nothing to say. They won't speak through me again. Before I came here, I threw them in the fire. And my heart was lighter to see them go. That was very wise of you. There is always a price to be paid for magic. And the price is too high to pay. You have to feel for Mark, and wonder what the hell he did to deserve such a fate. Or perhaps that is the great tragedy here. An innocent bystander, a man just minding his own business, is tangled up in a web of chaos that was walking just below him in the streets. And the creaking door never disappoints. Magic, fate lines and fortune, just brilliant. This Wednesday, mates, I'm going to hop right back into some Lily Madrip and go from there, working my way through the remainder of her stories, as I've been getting many requests in this space. Not to mention, I really enjoy reading them. So, I can't wait to bring you more stories Wednesday. Stay tuned, share this podcast around if you think others you know would enjoy it, and thank you so much for listening. As always, till next time.